If we leave the collar without any feeling of spirituality, it can feel like something very mundane and self-indulgent and not important or materialistic because literally collar shows up in fabric and that's what the palette is made of. So, I mean, we talk a lot about making things that are material, spiritual, but the big day kahuna, the clothing of the Kohen is a beautiful example of how the material became spiritual. And the Mishkan itself is an example of how the material became spiritual. So I think if we think of ourselves as a microcosm, then maybe in some way, maybe our external can match our internal as well. there. I'm Tanya, and you are listening to Human and Holy, a podcast where we discuss the deepest parts of Torah, not just as scholars, but also as human beings. If you are listening to this and want to support our work, please visit humanandholy.com slash sponsor to sponsor an episode of the podcast or to give in any amount or email us at info at humanandholy.com for more detailed sponsorship opportunities. Today, we are talking all about color in Torah. Nechama Yafi creates color palettes for women, and if you don't know what that is, we'll get to it soon. And today, she explores the deeper meaning of color within Torah. What does the Cohen's clothing teach us about the significance of color in our own clothing? How did the Ibn Ezra describe each person's connection to a planet and a season and how that shows up in the colors that they are connected to? This is the Torah's deep dive into color, not just with color palettes and seasons, but just about how the colors we experience through nature, our clothing, and the aesthetics of our home impact the way we feel and express ourselves. My name is Nahama Yafi. I do color consultation and sometimes closet consultation. Primarily, I help women find colors that help them feel beautiful, comfortable in themselves, and finding harmony with who they are on the inside and who they are on the outside. Nice. I create color palettes out of fabric and help people identify what season they are within the four seasons of the year and where they fall within that season, and what colors they wear, what styles they wear, and fabrics. Nice. Just for anyone who isn't familiar with the concept of color consultation, color palettes, seasons, can you explain a little bit about, before we get into the deeper meaning of it, just explain what it is and what the history of it is and what the system is for figuring out someone's color palette, et cetera. Yes. So one of the earliest people that practiced this, her name was Suzanne Cagle, and she connected the theory that there are four seasons of the year and there are four types within people. And every person falls into the four basic seasons of the year, summer, autumn, spring, winter. She believed that your style that you wear, your colors, 
everything about you, even your energy, your personality falls within a season. And with each season comes certain fabrics, certain patterns, and they all line up with what we observe and we experience in nature as the seasons change. So one of the things that I do, I follow her practice, which is finding fabrics that are flattering to people's skin tone, their hair color, their eye color, and their personality. And when you put all of those things together, you are able to create a very personalized palette, a fabric palette that complements every aspect of the person's personality. The nicest thing about the palette is that it only shows the beauty. If there's something that someone views as being negative in themselves or something that they don't like. The palette creates harmony with every aspect, the positive aspects and supports us where we may feel like our skin is too sallow or different things about ourselves that we may not be comfortable with. If we're supported with the correct palette, it actually shows the beauty of every part of a person. So it's a nice analogy also for a spiritual belief that we should see the beauty in everybody and not only in their outside, but we should see the beauty of everybody's soul. And I think that's one of the things that I've learned from doing this is that anytime you meet someone and you're creating a palette for them, you're not just connecting with them, you know, on their outside, you're connecting to their inside. And I think If we think about it that way, if we can see the beauty in every person, the way they are externally, we should definitely be able to see the beauty of every person internally. And just the way the palette only sees the positive and creates a balance between the things that need less support and the things that need more support, it's a really great reflection to how we are as souls, you know, and souls and bodies. So I think it's a nice analogy to begin with. I love that. You too. Yeah. So color palettes are definitely something that the religious community has been very involved with for many years. And in the last couple of years, I've seen it pick up speed, even just in the people around me talking about it more, discussing it more, more people getting their palettes. Social media has made it more popular, accessible. And something fascinating that you have studied is the deeper meaning of color in the Torah. So Today, we're going to discuss the deeper meaning of color and where the significance of color shows up in Torah, because we do have a really deep connection to the colors that we surround ourselves with, that we clothe ourselves with. And it's just fascinating to see where in the Torah we see the significance of color too. So can you begin just by sharing a little bit about what you've seen in the Torah about the significance of color? Yeah, so I think this subject is so vast. You know, the more that I study, the more I can understand that it's kind of a never-ending topic because once you start to open this book, it's a never-ending story about color and the value that it has within the Torah. One of the beautiful things that I wanted to start with, just the significance of color, is that the Zohar describes God as an artist and a master weaver. And we know that there's so much of God that we don't understand. And we're able to understand God in the most tangible way is that intersection of creation where God puts himself into the world. So the Zohar describes God as the weaver, but he also describes God as 
creating the world out of pure light and splitting that light into many colors. This is like a very esoteric idea, but we have more concrete references to this idea of color and creation, just in the story of creation, how each thing was created, you know, progressing from the first day to the last day. We know that with every one of the creations described, the birds, the trees, the flowers, each one of them carries a color that helps define what it is. So color is part of form and part of nature and part of the way that we understand God, because in the beauty of nature, we can truly grasp godliness. You know, clothing conceals us, but also reveals us. And the world is God's clothing. One of the beautiful things that the Ramban speaks about when he talks about the creation of the world is that he quotes the Tehillim, where it says that God spreads light like a garment. And he explains that that garment is representative of God's tallest. So the skies are actually mm. a representative of that. Even allegorically, that makes sense because the tallest is white and blue historically with the threads of Tehillim. And that makes sense because it's an allegory to the sky. So in everywhere we find an explanation of creation or of color in the Torah, it's a reference to something spiritual as well and something holy. I love that concept that the colors in the world represent the essence of what they are and that they help us define them. And nature is very much defined by color. And sometimes as humans, I feel like we see colors as random, but the color of our skin is not random the same way the color, the shade of a bird is not random. Yeah. And it's so interesting that you said that because Sometimes when I'm putting together a palette and I look at the colors together and you cannot push a color too far in one direction, too red, too orange, too yellow. And it has to be that perfect balance between every part of the palette that represents the part of the person, you know, their eye color, their hair color, their skin tone. And when you see how complex that geometry or that mathematical equation is, you think about how complex a world God created. And the palette is just one tiny piece representing all the complexities that goes into God's creations. And I was telling someone that you never find somebody with this specific type of coloring and eye color and hair color and facial features that don't fit together. Everything is harmonious. If there's any kind of something that looks unusual, it's actually part of the beautiful picture. And typically you find people with an autumn look, you know, a strong autumn look that also have the skin tone and the eye color and the hair color that go with it. So it just speaks to the complexity of creation. So it's kind of like a microcosm that we're like a small microcosm of the world and even in our physical attributes. And also just as you said from Zohar that the infinite light was divided into all of these colors. The colors are not random. They're so intentional. Right. And I was thinking also, if we think about that, the infinite light, I had a thought when I was thinking about this, is that if we think of every like neshama or every soul as being a diamond, we know that diamonds like reflect multiple facets, right? So it's just amazing because I've never done a palette that's been exactly the same as somebody else. Like every person is so individual and I feel like we should feel our own, like everybody really is special. I know 
we're in a generation where we go back and forth with this, like, is everybody special? And yes, everybody really is special. And the palettes prove it. I believe it reflects who you are. And it just shows the uniqueness of each human being. Nice. Okay. So I would love to get into the specifics of color. So you see just the significance of color in creation, just the fact that God created this world with so many different colors. We could have literally just lived in a black and white world, but what can you tell us about the Torah's perspective on the specific colors and what each of those might mean or represent? So this is like a very big topic. So for the purpose of giving people a frame of reference that they already know a lot about is the idea of the Mishkan. There's very few places in the Torah where color is also a commandment and also becomes a channel for holiness. So we can think of a few other situations. We can think of the Paraduma, the red heifer, or we can think the laws of Tsaraas, which is like based on color of leprosy. But never before and never after have we seen so much emphasis placed on color as we do in the Mishkan or the Beis HaMikdash, the temple or the tabernacle. And there is this idea, of course, in the Zohar that each of the colors have significance. And we find that they play out in the construction of the Mishkan and in the clothing that the Kohen Gadol wore, the high priest wore. So for example, chesed, which is kindness, is sometimes referred to as being white. Gavura, which is strength, is referred to as being red. Tiferis, which is beauty, is referred to as purple. And malchus, which is kingship, is referred to as a dark purple or a dark blue, which all of these colors, the red, the white, the blue, and the purple, all those very significant colors and also significant godly attributes show up in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle, and in the clothing, in the clothing of the Kohen Gadol. I mean, one of the beautiful things that we find in Jewish history is that the clothing of the Kohen Gadol the high priests were repeated throughout history, as in the story of Mordechai and Esther, when the Megillah describes Mordechai's clothing, it's described as clothing of royalty. But if you match up the colors that are used, the purple and the reds and the whites, those match up to the clothing of the Kohen Gadol, which is a representation of the divine attributes and the channeling that happens when the Kohen Gadol puts on his clothing. There's a truly beautiful story from the Gemara, from the Talmud, that shows the significance of the clothing of the high priest and how it actually channeled godliness. The story of Alexander the Great had a dream before every battle that he went to, and in a dream, he saw before him glistening the appearance of the Kohen Gadol. In this dream, he knew that if he saw the Kohen Gadol, he knew that he would be successful and he would win that battle. And when he went to Jerusalem, the Kohen Gadol went out fully clothed outside of the city limits to greet him. And people asked him, they said, why are you going out to greet Alexander the Great in your clothing, in your big day kahuna, the clothing that you're only supposed to wear within the Beis HaMikdash, within the temple. And he said, he'll only be able to recognize me if I'm wearing these clothing. And when he saw him, he bowed down before him and he thanked him. And what's really interesting to me about this story 
is that in the dream, he was wearing the clothing. And in the dream, he was giving Alexander the Great the divine advice. He was telling him what he would be successful with. So it's very interesting that the clothing itself was the channel and the coin gods all knew that. And therefore he came dressed in his clothing because he knew that he would only recognize him in that way. And I think that's just a beautiful allusion to the fact that we think of clothing as being external, but clothing can actually channel holiness, specifically in the clothing of the coin god doll. Mm. I love that. The clothing was an expression of his essence and of his identity as the Kohen. And his clothing were not just about wearing something dignified, but the colors themselves were specific because the colors themselves represented something. Absolutely. And, you know, the idea that the Kohen Gadol wore a crown, something that was similar to a king's crown, you know, while he, and the tzitz, and it has so many parallels to other things. It represents, of course, God's kingship, but it also represents the ultimate redemption because we say that the idea of the ultimate redemption is, you know, that we have a king again, you know, Israel is complete. And I just think the idea, the Kohen actually also carried that idea of Malchus and kingship, even though he was from the tribe of Levi, he did have that illusion to kingship by wearing the crown and wearing the clothing that he wore. Because throughout history, the colors of the clothing that the Kohen Gadol wore are used again and again to represent kingship. What can you share with us about the significance of the colors of the Choshen that the Kohen wore? So each of the stones in the Choshen represented the 12 tribes of Israel, but it also represented the personalities or the essence of each of those tribes. So one of the most important stones was the Barakas, which was the stone of Levi, which is the stone of the tribe of Levi. And we first find it historically in the story of Noah, that he actually hung this stone in his ark to illuminate the ark. So one of the things that we know about the stone, the root of the word is Barakas, which is lightning, because it illuminates or creates a flashing light. Throughout the story of Jewish history, this stone comes up over and over again. And Rabbeinu Bachya teaches that in every case where the stone is referenced, it represents wisdom and light because those things are inseparable. And we know, going back to how I introduced it, the Zohar speaks of Chachma, the first attribute of all the spiritual attributes, the Sfirot, as being light. And this is, again, another parallel that light is wisdom. And we know that the tribe of Levi were the teachers and they illuminated the Jewish people with their Torah. And we know that when Moshe Rabbeinu was born, the entire house filled with light. And this is the stone of Moshe. And we know again that when Moshe came down from Har Sinai, that his face was filled with light. And Rabbeinu Bachia says that light is equated with wisdom. And it says this actually in Kohalas, that light is wisdom. That's why this stone, this beautiful red stone that has a sparkling and flashing appearance represents the tribe of Levi. And there are other stones as well. And the Altar Rebbe speaks about Yosef, specifically the stone of Yosef, which I find very beautiful, is that Yosef is connected to the month of Adar, which we know. And we also know that his stone is an onyx, 
And the onyx is a black stone and it's never changing. And that represents the attribute of Yosef that even when he was in Egypt, he didn't change and he was very steadfast in his service to God. And throughout all the upheaval that happened, he was completely steadfast. And it reflects that he kept his godliness even in a place like Egypt. It reflects the strength of that tribe of Yosef. And each of the stones similarly have meanings. Binyamin is a multicolored stone, and he's the youngest of the tribes, and he also includes all the attributes that came before him. And that is very similar to his mother, Rachel, because just as she models or, you know, contains the attribute of Malchus, which is kingship, Binyamin as well as the youngest child of all the tribes also carries all the colors that came before him. And that's one thing that's significant about the stone, the Jasper stone, is that it contains all the colors that came before it. And that's similar to the attribute of kingship, which contains all the other colors. Because some people describe Malchus or kingship as being either a color that has all the colors of the rainbow or as a blue-black stone, which is a color that absorbs all the other colors. Mm. So each one has its own significance. What would you say, based on everything that you understand about the deeper meaning of each stone and what they represent, what would you say is the meaning of the Kohen wearing all of these colors? That's a great question. So one of the things that we know about the Choshan is that it was actually the channel for God's messages to come through to the Jewish people. And it was used throughout the history to ask questions when there was no way to get an answer. And we know that each of the stones, not only did it contain a color, it contained different permutations of letters. And those letters would light up when the Kohen Gadol would ask for the Jewish people, like, should they go to battle? Should they make a decision about something important? And one of the things that's really fascinating about this is that if one stone was missing, the Choshen would no longer be effective and would no longer be a channel for godliness. So in this way, we see that the command for the color, because each stone is connected to the color, that actually the mitzvah of the color actually created a channel for godliness. And this is one of the only places in the Torah that I've found so far where the actual color is a channel to the color of the stone and the stone itself becomes a channel for godliness. And without that, it's completely disqualified. The beautiful piece of this is that if even one stone is missing, the entire Choshen is not okay. It's not complete. It's something that's a nice parallel to the completion of the Jewish people, that we need all the colors, we need all the stones, we need everyone for it to work. And when everything is complete and in place, everything is a channel for godliness. And if there's any discord, it creates the opposite, the lack of a channel. So to me, it's a beautiful way to think about color as a channel. It's one of the most significant ways where we see that a mitzvah is based on color. I love that you said that each piece is needed in order for it to be a channel for godliness. And it reminds me of what you said in the beginning about how a color palette creates harmony between all the different parts of a person and that sometimes someone will have an unusual feature or skin color or whatever it is that they might see as being negative and the color palette would be different without that. Like the color palette creates harmony. Right. It wouldn't be as beautiful. 
And I think that's also, that speaks to the idea, like, you know, if God wanted to create the world in a simple way, it would have been black and white and there wouldn't be so many complex creations. And I think, like you said, a person represents that also that harmony where all these different pieces come together to create one thing. And of course, if one piece of the palette is also missing, you feel it, that something is missing. So I'm just thinking about the meaning of color itself. And I am someone who's never gotten my palette done, but feels so connected to color. And I experience this feeling of either feeling in harmony with my environment or with my clothing or feeling a strange disconnect that is hard to put your finger on, but you just feel like you're almost fighting with your dress or you're fighting with the room you're sitting in. Even if it's objectively nice, there's like this feeling of discord. And this is coming from someone who's never gotten their palette done. So I don't know officially what my colors are, but I do experience that feeling of harmony and disconnect that you're describing here. Yeah. It's interesting because each of the colors gives a different effect. So, you know, when I'm helping people with their colors, it's important to explain that not every color that is harmonious with you is going to give the same effect. Just like you have a multifaceted personality, not every color that you wear is going to bring out every aspect at the same time. Like if you wear a stronger color on your palette, it may make you look brave and strong and visible. And maybe if you wear a soft skin tone, it kind of makes you look more gentle and feminine and soft. Every color brings out a certain part of the personality. And if you're feeling really disconnected from the color or an outfit or something you're wearing, then usually it means that it's something that's probably not for you and it's for somebody else. It doesn't mean that it's not pretty. It means or not beautiful. It just means it's not beautiful for you and it's beautiful for someone else. Every palette has its balance and every palette has its high note and every palette has its softer colors. It's the whole feeling of the palette that creates a picture and everybody has their strength and everybody has their soft parts, like their gentleness. Mm. So... Even if you are the most early spring or the latest summer or the midwinter or mid-autumn, in every palette, there's the strengths and in every palette, there's the softness. What's really beautiful, though, about the palette is that when it's all laid out in front of you, you see all the aspects of nature. You see how much water is in the palette, how much earth, how much grass, how much, like just by the colors. If someone has a lot of greens and ochres and browns, you see a more woodsy palette or a more earthy palette. And you can see a palette that's more floral. And I think those things do represent people's personality, like sometimes a lightness and a brightness, you know, to like a spring palette really reflects on the beautiful lightness and brightness in that person or an eeriness and like a childlike quality. Mm, That's interesting. So you mentioned there was a source in the prayers of Yom Kippur that spoke a little bit more about color. Can you share that with us? Sure. So one of the things that I've been thinking about for a long time, because I was reading a lot about the Mishkan and the Beis HaMikdash and the clothing of the Kohen Gadol, I thought a lot about this tefillah that on Yom Kippur is my favorite tefillah on Yom Kippur. And it describes the appearance of the Kohen Gadol. Now, we don't know who wrote this tefillah. We know that it was written in the 1700s, but based on the words that are in this tefillah or piyot or poem, 
the way it's composed, according to the letters of the olive bays, we know that there's a significance to each of these phrases. And it's all about his appearance when he left the Kodesh HaKodeshim, the Holy of Holies. There's a lot of beautiful references to the Kohen Gadol. And in every phrase, he's compared to something that's very holy. But at the same time, the Piyot is supposed to remind us of what we're missing and what we don't have, what we've lost. And when we lost the Beis HaMikdash and we lost the Kohen Gadol. One of the phrases is the Kohen Gadol looks like, you know, the sky that's spread over our heads like a tent. And each of these phrases are from Tanakh. Each of them has a very spiritual meaning. For example, this idea that the Kohen Gadol looks like a sky spread like a tent, it says that the color of the sky is the color of Techeles. And the color of, of the sky reflects the color of the sea. And the color of the sky also reflects the color of the Kiseha Kavod, which is godliness and Shekhinah. So in every one of these phrases, there's a deeper meaning. It's not just like, oh, he looks like the sky. He looks like he's representing the Shekhinah and godliness. And each one in its turn, like the, it actually compares him to Techeles. It says that he's like the strands on the talus. He's like the appearance of the rainbow in the sky which is another reference to the Shrina and the appearance of the Shrina. So in every phrase, it's showing the beauty of the Kohen Gadol in every permutation historically. It compares him to Adam when he was clothed in the clothing of light that God gave him. It compares him to Moshe Rabbeinu when he waited for God to answer him, when he went to ask for the Jewish people where it says, you know, in the Tehillim, you know, Yoshev Beseser Alyon, who sat and waited for God. And we say that the Kohen Gadol looked like that. The Kohen Gadol is compared to a beautiful rose in a garden, and that brings people life. In the Gemara, it speaks about someone who's distracted or unhappy, and they go to a garden and they see a beautiful rose. It kind of brings their life back to them. So he's also compared to actually the crown on a king's head. He's compared to the face of a bride and a groom. And we know that on the day that someone gets married, all their sins are forgiven and their soul shines in the brightest way and every prayer is answered. So the coin is compared to a bride and a groom. And he's also compared to the morning star, which represents hope you know, the star that comes after the darkness. So every analogy is this beautiful analogy. And I think it also shows that the spiritual beauty was represented and manifested itself in a physical way, in a way that people were able to observe. Because mm. the phrase that comes after that, Piyot, is the phrase that says that we've lost that and we haven't experienced that, that we were able to see the appearance of the Kohen Gadol, and we no longer have that. So to me, it's a beautiful example of using the Kohen Gadol who was clothed in this royal clothing. And if we visualize him wearing that crown and wearing his clothing, the red, the white, the purple, and we can only imagine, you know, how he appeared. But I think this piot shows that in every way, his appearance was really a channel for godliness. And never was he more holy when he emerged from the Kodesh HaKadashim because 
a Kohen Gadol could only emerge if the sins of the Jewish people were forgiven and he was forgiven. So the fact that he was able to emerge meant that he bought this atonement or forgiveness for the Jewish people. And with that came great beauty. I loved how it ended the description of the Kohen with our loss of not having the physical appearance and visual mm-hmm. of the Kohen. Yeah. That when you looked at the Kohen, it was like a physical representation of all of those ideas. Yeah. And in the text that we use, the last one of the last phrases is the phrase that says he's like the star in the East, you know, in the early morning, which is so interesting because it ends with hope. The Piot ends with hope that we will have that again. So I thought that it's really a beautiful way to end it. There's different texts to this Piot, but it's a beautiful way to end it in a positive and uplifting way that there's hope that we will regain that beauty. Nice. Yeah. I want to go a little personal and ask you, we've spoken so much about all the familiar places where we've heard of the idea of color, but just shedding light on how deep the significance of color was there. I'm wondering how you personally got into this, not specifically just color, but also color in Torah. Like when was the first time that you were like, color is not just color. Color is something so much deeper and that you started to stumble on or seek out sources in Torah that could educate you more about what color meant. So I've been interested in this for many years, but I also have another job. (laughs) So I wasn't able to do it as much as I'm able to do it now. But when I decided to study color and to start delving into the history and art and different eras in history and also different cultural costumes, at the same time, I was studying Sefer Yitzira, Eov, and also the Ibn Ezra. And I went from one thing to the next. I started with Eov. And when I started to read the explanation on Eov, I came upon the Ibn Ezra who referenced something from Sefer Yitzira, and then everything just kind of went from there. And I came upon the spiritual reference for color exactly, and I will say totally from God, at the exact same time where I decided I was going to study color and study palettes and learn how to help women feel beautiful and feel comfortable in themselves and comfortable with who they are in every way. At the same time, I came upon all this information, not purposefully, it came to me. And that's why I started studying it. And it's been coming to me since then. I was studying something that I thought was separate from color. And it is really the Ibn Ezra Avram Ibn Ezra that brought me to the study of color and Kabbalah because in his writings, he references Kabbalistic sources and specifically Sefer Yitzira in his understanding of color. And what's really beautiful about the Ibn Ezra is that he believed that color had spiritual significance as many of the Spanish scholars did like Rabbeinu Bachia and the Ramban, similarly from a similar generation. And I believe that this was his way of connecting to godliness. And one of the things that he writes in his primary book that discusses color 
The book is called Reishis Chachma, and he wrote that Reishis Chachma Yiras Hashem, which of course he said takes precedence before anything to do with astrology or colors, you know, the months of the year and all those connections that he made. And we know that he was a very observant person and he was, you know, a holy man. And the significance of color didn't interfere with his practice, but actually enhanced his practice because he believed that understanding astrology and different sciences and things like that, astronomy, was what helped him connect to God. And for me, I would just say on a personal level, I connect a lot to God through nature. It's a place where I feel connected to godliness. And we all have our way. There are people who are musicians, who are teachers, who are mothers. We all have our way of connecting to godliness. And we connect in many different ways, but maybe in some ways, it's more significant to us. And I like to use the analogy, this is my own analogy, but it says in Gemara, there's this debate about ha'oches batalis, you know, grasping who's holding on to the talis. And I will just say for me, I hold on to godliness and I'm holding on to the edge of God's garment through nature and through connecting with people and helping people feel beautiful. That's how I'm holding on. And we're all holding on in some way. Oh, that is so beautiful. Thanks. <laughs> I thought a lot about this. I've been thinking a lot about colors. <laughs> yeah. You've been thinking about colors for years. <laughs> I've been thinking about colors for years, but I will say what is amazing to me, and this all speaks to like divine providence, Hashkacha Pratis, is that I found the spiritual, I felt like I couldn't go into this craft without really knowing what the spiritual significance was of color because I found it at the same time that I was literally like, I had three books open and then I had three books open on color and three books open on like the Ibn Ezra, the Ramban, Sefer Yitzira. And I just felt like all of this, like everything kind of matched up because if we leave the color without any feeling of spirituality, it can feel like something very mundane and self-indulgent and not important or materialistic because literally color shows up in fabric and that's what the palette is made of. So, I mean, we talk a lot about making things that are material, spiritual, but the big day kahuna, the clothing of the Kohen is a beautiful example of how the material became spiritual. And the Mishkan itself is an example of how the material became spiritual. So I think if we think of ourselves as a microcosm, then maybe in some way, maybe our external can match our internal as well. I love that parallel. And it does help you understand why it's not just something that shows up in material, but why it has the capacity to be so much more. Absolutely. I'm so curious to know what was it that you saw in the Evanezra when you first stumbled on the idea that color was spiritually meaningful? It's interesting. So whenever I read Tanakh or study Tanakh, the Ibn Ezra always has a really interesting combination of being very logical and very grammar-based. One of the things, if you read the Ibn Ezra, he's very grammar-based and he explains why a word occurs in a certain way and what it means, you know, like a lot of the grammarians. And he also has a very artistic and spiritual side. We know that he wrote poetry and he loved astrology. And what stood out to me the biggest significance to me was that when he did someone's astrological chart or when he just taught in his books about astrology, of course, through the lens 
of a Jewish person and an observant person. He believed that a person should wear the colors of their astrological chart and the influences of their astrological chart. And it's a kind of a complex thing, but each of the planets has a color that's most significant to it. And this is brought up in other sources in Kabbalah. But he believed that because each of the planets has an influence of color, then the month that you're born, the day that you're born has this whole great tapestry of color created by all the influences in your astrological chart. But interestingly, he describes all the seasons of the year, and then he describes each month of the year, the stones, the colors, the animals, the nature that contributes to each specific month of the year down to like tiny details, like gemstones and metals. And it really matches up with, if we look at each season as being divided, the four seasons into three months, which we do when we create a palette for somebody we usually can tell them if they're at the beginning, the middle, or the end of their season. And the Benezer actually assigns to each of the months of the year, he assigns very specific fabrics, colors, motifs that go with each month of the year. And they actually match up exactly to someone who falls within a early spring, a middle spring, or a late spring, or a summer, a midsummer, or a late summer. He also divided the year into more seasons than because he believed that there were seven principal seasons rather than our typical four. He also gave attributes if we divided our lifespan into seven different categories, each of parts of our life would represent either spring, summer, autumn, or winter as old age, spring as being infancy and childhood. But it's very complex and the beauty of it is, is that he understood that there was godliness, I think, in nature. And he wanted people to observe the significance of each of the minute changes in each season and what could represent them in each season. That is fascinating. It's an early chronicle of this concept. Yeah. And I often say that the Ibn Ezra spoke about seasons, colors, gemstones, and metals, and even motifs that go with it, like certain animals that go, for example, one of the months of summer is represented by having, you know, fruit trees and flowers and embroidery. And it matches up so beautifully with the season summer and with what a summer would wear. It's just incredible because the Ibn Ezra came thousands of years before the color theory that I'm following. And he understood that each season is connected with fabric, color, and design. It's just incredible to me. Like, and maybe we say that the Torah has everything in it and the Torah truly does. Like I came back to the source by finding the Ibn Ezra, but he came way before people were making color palettes for people. And that was even a concept. That is so cool. I would love to hear more examples of his identification of certain months and what was connected to them. Okay. So there's two ways that the Ibn Ezra divides the year. He divides it into seven seasons based on the seven planets. So if each of the planets represents an era in our life, and there's actually very strong spiritual significance to this as well, which I have to study more about, but the moon represents infancy and we know that because, you know, if we think about the Jewish month, we always say that the Jewish people are constantly being renewed like a newborn child. And moon always represents renewal and infancy. So moon represents early spring. 
And the colors, for example, that the Ibn Ezra associates with it are gray and green, birds, white birds, squash, melons, cucumbers, silver, onyx. And these colors all match up with early spring, these beautiful silvery colors. Mercury, which is Kochav Shemesh, is also represents spring. It's considered childhood. And it's represented by embroidery and linen clothing, which we see in springs, colorful embroidery. It represents silver, mercury, sparkling coins and stones, represents rivers, um, birds, starlings, bees, like all these things that come with spring. Represents pomegranates, fruits. We often see fruits associated with spring as well. And the colors of mercury are blue and all colors mixed together like a rainbow effect, which we do see in a spring palette. We see all the colors mixed together. Then Venus, which is the border between spring and summer, which is called Noga, has all those things that go with it. It has deer that's associated with summer very often, fruits, orchards, gardens, all the things associated with summer are associated with that planet and with also that era in life. The clothing that's associated with Venus is also embroidery and cotton cloth and everything that's pretty or everything that's beautiful. The colors are copper and green, which also represent summer. And then the sun represents late summer, which is bordering on autumn. And all the colors that go with that, diamonds, gold, yellow, the color yellow, lions, we see that often. And then fig trees, all those, those trees that come into fruit at the end of the summer, the beginning of the autumn also wheat and anything that is harvested. And of course, Mars represents the red colors, the reds and the golds and the yellows, represents you know dark woods, dark trees, represents saffron, which is a reddish dye, represents all dyed garments and all garments made of fur, which really associates, Mars is also part of autumn in the lifespan and also in the sequence of the planets. And then Jupiter is early winter, and early winter is represented by white clothes, pure things, sapphires. And if you think about the winter palette, it actually matches up very well with Jupiter. And then the last planet, which is Saturn, Shabtai, which is the darker colors, the dark blues, the dark purples and the blacks. In each of these, he represents, you know, the sequence of life, but also the spiritual meaning of the colors. You know, and each of these colors is connected as well to a sephira, to, you know, an attribute. Just like Malchus is the last Shabtai, which is the ruling planet for Shabbos, is also represents Malchus, which is that dark blue. And it's a color that is represented there in that planet. But if we look at the specific months also have their colors, the spring months, the first month of spring represents, you know, sheep and pink and white. It even, he even writes red and white mixed together. He uses those to say like the first month of spring and then the second month of spring, green and white, which is also another like very popular spring combination and talks about fruits being part of it, the motif for that. And then the third month of spring is represented by ear and it's like all iridescent colors, which is also something you might see in a spring. And jasmine is one of the flowers associated with that, the third month of spring. 
and it goes on and on. Each of the months of the year, you know, of course, are represented by a specific colors, animals, motifs, fabrics. Yeah, each of those things. Oh, that is so fascinating. And I love to see it in such detail because it's cool to hear you just talk about your own discovery of it. But then I'm like, this is what you discovered. That's a treasure chest. It is a treasure chest. And there's a lot, there's so much more. And I hope I get to share more of what I learn with people because I don't want to have one without the other. I don't want to continue to create palettes for people and, and lose sight of the spiritual part of it and the weight that that carries. Yeah. So knowing the spiritual weight of color, I want to end off by asking you how people can become more connected to the colors that they surround themselves with, regardless of whether or not you got your palette done, how can you become more intentional about the colors that you surround yourself with and what they signify? I think that we need to be in touch with ourselves. One of the things that I noticed is sometimes when someone will come to have their palette done, they may be in tune to certain colors that they feel comfortable with, but they don't know all of the colors. So I think it's really experimentation, like trying a color. If you haven't had your palette done, trying a color and noticing how it makes you feel and also how people perceive you when you're wearing that color. For example, somebody has told me who hasn't had her palette done that she was wearing a color that was off and she felt like her energy was drained and she also wasn't attracting the energy that she typically does when she's wearing a color that does look good on her. Interesting. So she was able to tell that she wasn't projecting and she also wasn't receiving. So the idea of the palette is, is that there's millions of colors in the world, but the idea of the palette is that that you should be able to give and receive in the way that feels comfortable to you. And if either of those are blocked, the color is wrong. So like if you're feeling really drained and really not in your energy, then that color is not right. If you feel really in your energy or you feel really energized by a color, then maybe it's one of your stronger colors or one of your more significant, like brighter colors. But I think people need to start to notice how they feel in a color, like something very specific. And then they can decide when they wear it and how they wear it. Of course, it's easiest if you have your palette done, but I think everybody can come to it. I just think that it's more work to figure it out on your own versus having help from somebody. But the first thing I would say is notice how you feel. Notice what energy you're giving out and what energy you're taking in. And if it's something is off, then the color's wrong. Mm, that's pretty cool. It's an exercise also in just paying attention to how to just being in tune with your feelings about something that, like you said, could seem so materialistic, but does go so much deeper, the colors that we wear and that we surround ourselves with. It does. And I think it's also, if we can think of it in the most basic way as kind of like a backdrop. So the way I think mm -hmm. of it is that the colors shouldn't interfere with your energy and your personality. They shouldn't take away. They shouldn't be too dull. They shouldn't be too strong. And it's the idea of creating a balance. So it's almost like having like a beautiful scenery behind you or like a beautiful scenery at a play. It shouldn't be something that you have to think about. Once you have it, it will become effortless and it will just become part of who you are. That's the best way to have it, like where it's not taking up or consuming too much of your time and energy, but it's almost becomes like second nature. And it's just like, oh, I'm wearing this color and this feels great. Or I'm going to choose that color because I feel so 
calm and low key in it. And it's like, you don't have to think about it anymore. It's like so second nature. That really struck me because that's like, sometimes you have to put an effort to set something up materially so that you don't have to think about it at all. Right, right. It's with any kind of organization that, you know, you have to do like even when you're taking care of little kids, it's like, you know, you have to make sure that you have the food that you need to make lunches the next day and all those things, all those little details that go into the organization piece. I'm just thinking that anyone listening, and definitely this is the strongest criticism I've heard of palettes. Tell is, me. I don't want to focus so much, or on color in general. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't want to focus so much. Like I get dressed, I look nice. I don't want to start focusing so much on the intricacies of which colors look good on me and which shades. Mm-hmm. But the way that you said it was so clear that it's like, you put in some effort there and then you don't have to think about it when you're moving through the world. You don't the colors that you're wearing, the clothing that you're wearing is flowing with you. It's expressing you. It's not interfering with your energy. That was a good line. You put the effort in and then you get a beautiful harmony. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And then, and the bonus is, is that everything kind of fits together. You know, you're not fighting yourself or trying to be somebody else. Right. Like you said, it's about tuning into how you feel and how the colors are harmonizing with you and your energy. Mm Mm-hmm. This was beautiful. I learned so much. Oh, I'm so happy. I love to see, like you said, there everything is within the Torah and it's fascinating to be able to explore it. Anytime I think that the Torah uses color, color is always an analogy to something else. Color doesn't exist on its own. So I think everything that we spoke about shows that color is representative of something deeper. It's like anything else in nature that represents some spirituality. And that's why I think people are also so attached. I mean, some people that do have their palettes done feel very connected to it and very protective of it because it really does have some spiritual connection to them, to their personality. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was great. Thank you. This was awesome. Elokai zakinina betoratcha uvimitzotecha lechaberet nishmati tamidilecha mechaber mechaber. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, I want to invite you to leave a rating or a review. It helps other people find the podcast. And you know, we're all about getting Hasidus into every corner of the world. I also want to invite you, if you really loved it, to share it with a friend who you think might love it too. If you would like to sponsor an episode, you can reach out to us at humanandholy at gmail.com. To give to Human and Holy in any amount, visit humanandholy.com slash sponsor. You can follow us on Instagram at humanandholy, and you can stay up to date with everything we do by signing up for our newsletter on humanandholy.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.